In Romans 8, 31 through 39, we're going to finish the chapter today. Paul raises five questions, and it's one of the clearest statements in Scripture where he gives you the question, and then he answers the question. Uh, It's very clear, the answer to each one. And uh, this is the passage that is based upon what I spoke on last week, the promise that God gave us. Remember last week we talked about how all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And Paul begins the next passage by saying, essentially, in light of what I just said, let me explain what this means. So we're going to look at Paul building on that. So let's look at Romans 8, uh, verse 31, and I'm going to read this in the New Living Translation. It says, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation, will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that amazing? Come on, you need to be more excited about this than that. Hallelujah. This is amazing. The words in there are, they are so poetic, but the truth that's contained in this uh, section of scripture is just amazing. So the Apostle Paul asks us five questions. These are based on everything he's been sharing with us in Romans 8. This whole structure that he's built, talking about us being adopted as sons and daughters, talking about his amazing love for us, talking about his promise to be at work on our behalf, no matter what happens in our life, to be the one who is working, the one who is uh, working all things together for good in our life. This is something that Paul wants all followers of Jesus to understand. And when he talks about the adoption and the the verses right before this, this changes everything. What he's saying to us is, I'm not talking about religion. When we talk about being adopted as sons and daughters, that changes every dimension, everything about our lives. And this promise that he gives us today is based on that. I want you to know something, too, about adoption. I don't know if I mentioned this before, but during the time that Paul wrote, adoption was a huge issue. What had happened is the Roman emperors uh, had started a tradition of choosing their successor and adopting a son to follow them. This was something that was part of the Roman Empire. So when Paul talks about this, probably about 50 AD, uh, there were several Roman emperors that had chosen a son, adopted them, and literally at their death bequeathed not only all their authority, but everything they had to them. 
Roman law was such that you could disown a natural-born child, but once you were adopted, that could never be reversed. And Paul is, is basing theological truth on this, this understanding of being part of God's kingdom, about being adopted uh, into his kingdom. So the promise that God will be at work in every situation of our life. Let's look at the first question he asks. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? He's talking about adoption, spiritual adoption. He's talking about working all things together for good. People who understand the importance of this language understand what God has done for us. Do you understand what the Lord has done for you? That you've been adopted into his kingdom? That you... You can't be taken out. The Lord's love will never fail. There's nothing you can do that will get the Lord to stop loving you. The second question that Paul asks, he says this, since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? This is important. I want to ask you a question. How many of you have ever questioned God's love for you? Let's be honest here. I have. When something goes wrong, one of the first responses for many of us is, God, where are you in this? Lord, are you, are you really committed to me? Do you really love me? We all have moments in our life where we've looked at things going around and we say, can God love us? And when I share the gospel with people out in the world, I can't tell you how many people I've run into that said, no, I don't believe in God. There was a moment in my life where I really needed the Lord and he didn't come through for me. He didn't answer my prayer the way I wanted it to be answered. We need to be careful about that. If God answered every prayer that all of us wanted to be answered, what would the world look like? That's a scary thought for a moment. He answers things according to his will because he is greater than us. He sees all things. He knows all things. Usually we question God's love when things are going wrong, don't we? He says in verse 35, can anything separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble, calamity, are persecuted or hungry or destitute? These were realities for many of the first century Christians and they're realities for a lot of Christians. As a matter of fact, today for sure we know there are about 46 countries in the world where if you are a Christian believer, if you're a follower of Christ, you can not only be arrested and imprisoned, but you could lose your life. So these words have a different impact for them. And the Lord is saying, just because things in this world don't go the way that you think they do, or you're a little bit uncomfortable about things are happening, does that mean that God has abandoned you? Does it? No. You weren't very convincing when you said that. He says, as scripture says, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. He's quoting the Old Testament there. He says, no, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. How can Paul say this? Well, this is the same guy that said to live is Christ, to die is gain. Because Paul had an eternal perspective. And God wants us to have an eternal perspective too. That doesn't mean that when we call upon the Lord, he doesn't come to our rescue sometimes. He does. But there are other times he gives us grace to go through hard circumstances. And for some believers, for some followers, this is a hard thing. God uses even adversity, trouble, and persecution for his good in our lives if we allow him. So don't think that just because things aren't going the way that would be the easiest way or things aren't going the way that you would want them to go, that God has abandoned you. What the Lord is saying to us here, if God gave Jesus up for us, if Jesus willingly laid down his life for us, what good gift will he withhold from us? Think about that. 
It's an amazing thing. Don't ever doubt that God loves you. Paul goes on and says, if God gave the best in his son, what other gift would he withhold? He's already given you the best. Paul answered his own question. God is pleased to bless us in every way. How many of you know for sure we don't always know what's best for us, do we? We think we do. I think when I was a young Christian, if God had answered all of my prayers, well, first of all, I would be in heaven right now. Because I remember asking the Lord, as a very young Christian, Lord, I said, Lord, I don't ever want to sin again. Well, there's a solution for that. <laughs> the Lord could say, bless him. Come on home, son. I'm just being real frank with you. We pray prayers and we don't know. I prayed another prayer one weekend. It was on Good Friday. And I said, Lord, what, what did you go through in the Garden of Gethsemane? What was that like? Can you let me feel that? One of the most dangerous prayers I ever prayed. I thought probably for about three days I was going to lose my mind. All I could do was cry and weep. And there was just a heaviness that came on me. And I realized I shouldn't be cavalier in asking the Lord for things. The Lord showed me the sorrow that he had. And, and, and I was praying for all these people. I mean, God was bringing one person after another to mind that needed to be saved. And I would just weep for them. And I thought, Lord, this is a little taste of what you had in the Garden of Gethsemane. You were thinking of all the people that you loved. So we need to be careful about what we pray. The scripture says he gives us the answers to our prayer according to his will. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Thanks be to God that he does not answer prayers that according to our will that are contrary to his will. And that's a reality that we have to learn to embrace. 1 John 14, I just let me read it. It says, we are confident that, when he, that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. And since we know he hears us when we make our request, we also know that he will give us what we ask for. It's a little more clear in, in the King James. Let me read it there. It says, and this is the confidence we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. We're in a covenant partnership with God. He is the senior partner. Hallelujah. That means that when we pray to him, it's not us trying to convince God to do things our way. It's a matter of listening to our senior partner and saying, Lord, how do I cooperate with you in bringing your will to pass? That's why the Lord's prayer is so full of truth. What do we pray? His will be done. His kingdom come. Not Joe's kingdom come. Not my will be done. But it's the Lord's will and it's his kingdom. And our hearts need to be conformed to the Lord. So maybe that Maserati you prayed for just wasn't the best thing for you at that particular time in your life. And the Lord says, not right now, son. You can have it in heaven if you need it. I don't know. Question three, Paul asks, who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? Paul asked the question, now that we know that we are in Christ, now that we know we have been adopted as sons and daughter, who would dare accuse us? course, the accuser is Satan, isn't it? That's his job. That's his very nature. Accusation is one of the demonic realm's primary weapons. Accuse early and accuse fast, okay? All the time, constant accusation. Do you know that there are some people, even God's people, people that belong to the Lord, that live with a voice in their head or their heart, whatever you want to call the soul, where there's constant accusation, they never feel like they're good enough for God. 
they never feel like God would forgive them. It's interesting, the Apostle Paul, in some of his writings, God reveals things through him that we need to hear. 2 Corinthians 2.10, here it's talking about forgiving a man who has sinned in the church, and he's telling the church, you need to forgive this man so Satan will not capitalize on this situation and bring destruction. Listen to what he says. He said, when you forgive this man, I forgive him too. And when I forgive whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit so that Satan will not outsmart us for we are familiar with his evil schemes. So here's the question. Have you been outsmarted by Satan? Are you running his plan in your head? Are you allowing accusation to be part of your self-talk and and what you listen to? Have you accepted a false view of who God is so that you think that God is this nasty ogre type guy that's way out there on this throne putting out all these proclamations against you? Today, let me pick on Mike. Today, what can I do to make Mike uncomfortable? How can I get Mike? How can I make Mike feel miserable? That's not our God. Who is that? It's pretty obvious. Are you letting Satan outsmart you? Revelations 12, 10, it says, I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens. It has come at last, salvation and power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. Theologians disagree exactly when this happened. Some people believe it already happened. I believe it happened at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're seeing this prophetically uh, you know, in this revelation. Satan's power of accusation has come to an end. Satan has no standing to accuse any one of you. Now that you've been adopted as sons and daughters, it has nothing to do with you, by the way. It does have something to do with your obedience to the Lord. But I have to tell you this, we could never have kept a covenant with the Lord. How many of you know that? This is what communion is about. You could have never kept covenant with the Lord. That's why Jesus came down on your behalf and established a covenant between God the Father and God the Son. He is your representative. He is your attorney in heaven. He is also your judge. He is your brother, and you've been adopted. This is one of those situations, maybe you've heard the story, where the judge pronounces the sentence, comes out from behind his dais, comes down in front and says, I'm going to serve the sentence for you, and you're not going to have to suffer any punishment. This is the kind of God that we have. And yet, who allows the enemy to continue to accuse us? See, Satan has power only if we give it to him. He has been discredited. He has been cast down. And scripture tells us that God has demonstrated in the heavens the power of Christ and has literally humbled powers and principalities. Ephesians 6 verse 11 says, put on all God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies or all the schemes of the devil. The devil knows our weaknesses. He knows things that you still feel guilty about. And I want to to give you a clue here. Do you know why people allow accusation to happen? God's forgiven them, but they don't forgive themselves. That's part of our problem. You say, well, what can, what can stand between us and the love of God? There's nothing that really can stand, but if you allow accusation to continue to go on, if you think you deserve to be punished, even though Christ died for you, you won't be able to receive God's love. This is a key point, and I'm going to lead us in a prayer at the end of the service, because I think for a lot of us, we've allowed the enemy to live in our heads rent-free. 
When scripture talks about taking every thought captive, what does that mean? That means that we don't allow self-talk, things to go on in our mind that are contrary to the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you think it's godly to allow the enemy to beat you up, then the Lord will let you allow that to happen. But it really doesn't glorify God. You're not paying for your own sins. Your sins were already paid for. And yet for many of us, we let that go on. We let that accusation go on. For some of us, we even participate with the enemy and we accuse other people. Okay? And that's, that's a problem. We have other accusers in our life. Sometimes we accuse ourselves. We're unwilling to forgive ourselves even when God has forgiven us. Maybe we feel like we need to add a little bit to the cost of our forgiveness, so we beat ourselves up. Sometimes we're unjustly accused by others, and the, and the words of other people in our lives can be very heavy, can't they? When people say things against us. But I'm so glad that God is full of grace and compassion. He is the only perfect one who has a right to accuse us, and he chooses not to. If we give into accusation, what happens? We lose our peace with God. You need to remind Satan and all the demonic realm there is therefore now no condemnation or ground for accusation in, our, in my life. has nothing to do with me because I'm imperfect. It has everything to do with my Lord Jesus Christ who laid his life down for me. I have been washed by his blood. I have been cleansed by him. Sometimes it even means we need to break a soul tie with accusers in our life. There are events and things that have happened in our life. What's a soul tie? A soul tie is an emotional and spiritual bond with somebody in our life. It could be a parent. It could be a wife. It could be somebody that we've been in relationship with. Sometimes people think soul ties are just sexual in nature. They're not. There are all sorts of spiritual bonds. Let me ask you a question. Are there people that you frequently think about that you hear their voice in your head? It can be a coach. It can be uh, a parent. It can be even somebody who's died years ago, and yet you hear their words. You'll never amount to anything. How could you ever do something like that? I mean, sometimes the words of people in authority in our life can leave deep scars. Can I tell you that God can heal those? And sometimes we need to let those people rest. We need to uh, and I've actually led people in prayers where we have people that have died generations ago. And what we've done is we've prayed prayers of forgiveness and we've broken that tie from the past so that their hearts can be free in the healing of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is good, isn't he? Now, this fourth one is, is, is connected to the third. Who then will condemn us, Paul asks. And I already quoted Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation, Okay. But I want to read this. This is from uh, Sky Ethan. He's the senior editor of Leadership Journal. It's a journal for pastors and leaders. He tells a story about holding a series of meetings with college-age students. And uh, the topics ranged across a wide spectrum, um, hell, dating, uh, doctrine of the church. But each conversation had three rules, to be honest, to be gracious, and to be present. Okay, these are people on university campuses. So here's the quote out of the article that Sky writes. He says, On one night, the students want to discuss habitual sins. And although they struggled with a variety of sinful behaviors, they all agreed on one thing. God was extremely disappointed with them. 
One student said, my parents were students at a Christian college in the early 90s when a revival broke out. They were on fire for God, and here I am consumed by sin day after day. Often through tears, many other students shared similar stories about how they believe God must be disappointed with them. After listening to their stories, Jeff and I asked, how many of you were raised in a Christian home? And they all raised their hands. How many of you grew up in a Bible-centered church and all hands stayed up? Shaking his head in, in disbelief, Jeff and I said, you all have spent 18 or 20 years in the church. You've been taught the Bible from the time you could crawl and attend Christian colleges, but not one of you gave the right answer. Not one of you said, in the midst of all your sins, God still loves you. He then concluded, I did not blame the students for their failure. Somewhere in their spiritual formation, they were taught either explicitly or implicitly. Sometimes it's a teacher that puts these thoughts in our head. Sometimes we, we just pick it up and we, it's implied that what mattered was not God's love for them, but how much they could accomplish for him. So I want to officially, again, tell you something right now. While you were at the worst point of your life, if you are right now in the worst point of your life with regards to God, if your heart is full of rebellion, if you are doing wicked things, it has nothing to do with God's heart for you. He loves you. The apostle Paul called himself the chief of sinners. Think about this. Why did he call himself the chief of sinners? Because as a religious man for a while, he thought that Jesus was a bad guy. So he went from door to door, pulling people out, having them beaten and locked, and some of them were killed. Paul considered himself a murderer with blood on his hands. This is the guy that's talking about the message of grace. When he says he was a chief of sinners, he's just not playing with words. He was talking about a period of, in his life where he was an enemy of Christ, where he was totally opposed to the church. I don't care what you've done or what you're doing. You need to know that God loves you. His heart will never change. When the Bible says God is love, it's not talking about a squishy feeling. It's talking about his intent to do the very best for you and everything in your life. When God talks about his love, what he's saying is, I have a design for you. I have a destiny for you. You are my son or daughter. I will never reject you. I'm like the father in the prodigal son story that even before the son repented, the father ran out and threw his arms open. That's our God. So if you got the idea that you did something wrong and God's mad at you and doesn't want to talk to you and he's got his arms crossed in heaven and every time you pray, he turns the other way. That's not coming from God. Okay, it's not coming from the Lord. For years as a college student, it's ironic when I read this because I thought about this. I thought that I had, I'd sinned too far, I'd gone too far, and that God, I believed that there was an unpardonable sin. The Bible talks about that, but we won't even get into that. And I thought I had done it. I just gave up. And do you know why a lot of people just kind of fly off into outer space and rebellion against God? They think there's no chance for them. There was a book that came out in the 90s that was an amazing book, and it really rocked my world and a lot of other people, and it's Taking Our Cities for God by John Dawson. He has a dialogue in that book where he's meeting with one of the top pornographers in the uh, Los Angeles area, and you go, wait a minute, what's a Christian leader doing meeting with a top pornographer? Showing him the love of Christ and trying to lead him to Jesus. That's what he's doing. 
And there was a moment in the conversation where John Dawson looks at this guy across the table and says to him, do you realize with the gifts you have in communication, do you realize with the gifts that God has given you, if you turn them for the glory of God, what that could do for your life and what that could do for the world? And the guy looked at him and says, you mean God could use me? I want you to think of the implicit lie there. Why was this guy an enemy of God? He gave up on God a long time ago because he thought God would never accept him that God couldn't use him, that he had gone too far, that he had done the wrong thing. Years ago, we had a messenger conference in Las Vegas. I know, having a conference in Vegas with pastors is a gamble, isn't it? Oh, there's the Pastor Joe, groaner of the day. We had, we had fun in Vegas. The guy, uh, it was at the Golden Nugget, one of the older uh, casinos, and he had come to Christ. And he said, hey, why don't you guys come? I'll give you an amazing price. So Messenger Fellowship showed up at the Golden Nugget. And I didn't see anybody at the tables. Just want you to know that, okay? But we, uh, of course, the food in Vegas is great and the hospitality was great. Somebody on one of the days changed the signs between Messenger Fellowship and Gamblers Anonymous. So all the Gamblers Anonymous people were coming into our room and all the pastors were going into the Gamblers Anonymous room. There was a little bit of confusion there on the, you know, up in the conference rooms. And uh, so the floor manager, who is also a Christian, comes in and says, well, while these guys are here, these guys are pastors. Why don't you have them pray for you? And we had a prayer meeting with all these people that were there for the Gamblers Anonymous thing. It was really cool. But the best thing was we ended up having lunch. The floor manager said, I want you to uh, have lunch with this guy. This is the man who invented the card shuffling machine. He's a multimillionaire, okay? Can you imagine that? Those machines that shuffle the cards. Some of you that don't play cards, you may not know. And we sat down with this man, and he says, I grew up in a Baptist church. He said, but I thought somehow along the way I lost my grip on God. And he said, I turned my back, and I, I turned all the gifts that the Lord gave me to do evil things. And he broke down right in the middle of lunch. He said, would you guys pray for me that the gifts that God has given me, he can use that creativity for his kingdom? And there, right there in the Golden Nugget Casino, we were praying for this backslidden, can Baptist be backslidden? I don't know, anybody that's a Baptist here? Yeah. It's proof, right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> anyway, we prayed for this guy, and his heart was just turned, and he says, I'm giving money to the Lord because God has blessed me financially. He said, but I want to invent things for God. I want to do things for his kingdom. See, that's what the Lord does. He wants to turn things around. He doesn't condemn us. He wants to transform us. If God wanted to condemn us, believe me, he's powerful enough, he would have done it. So Romans 8, 1, again, so there is therefore now no condemnation to those who belong in Christ Jesus. And then the last question that Paul asked, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? The answer that Paul gives here is so poetic and eloquent. If you're having a bad day and you're going through hard times, this is the portion of scripture you want to read. And I love it. I'm using the New Living Translation Sometimes you can memorize things. I've got things memorized in the King James and the New International Version, and I read it in New Living Translation. It's like it gives the verse an entirely new life. Verse 38, he says, And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life. What does that mean, neither death nor life? That means the moment that you leave your body, you're still in God's love. You're there. There's not a moment of broken time. He takes you from this life to the next, and you're right there. That's God's love. 
neither angels nor demons. Now we understand the demons part. Why did he say angels? Because a lot of people in Paul's day were starting into this heresy called Gnosticism, which believed that you could get to God, but you had to go through six or seven layers of angels to get to him. That's still taught in different forms today. It's called New Age religion. We just give new names to old heresies, okay? He's saying neither angels nor demons. In other words, you don't have to go through an intermediary. You don't need an angel. You don't need a little angel thing hanging on your car mirror to protect you while you drive. I grew up in a, uh, most of my aunts and uncles were Catholic, and they had special saints to protect them on, for certain things. And uh, I forget what the guy was they used to hang from their car mirror. Was it Christopher? Yeah, he had some problems in the saint world, didn't he? Was he reinstated? Yeah, he went through a rough time for a while. The, the, the amazing thing is as you go in history and you look at these people, some of these people are authentic believers that are probably going, why are they using my name like this? Jesus, help these people, okay? It says, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. How many of you have fears for today and worries about tomorrow? It doesn't make any sense to plug into fear or worry, does it? Most of what we fear and worry doesn't happen. There's nothing you can do about it anyway. If you are in a place where you're caught up in fear and worry, you need to get into the Lord and understand that, let's go back to the promise. All things work together for good. There's nothing that's going to happen in your life. Paul gets arrested and he's thinking, okay, what's going to happen here? Well, from an earthly perspective, this is a bad thing. He's part of this Roman system, and he appeals to Caesar, so he's going to the Supreme Court, and it doesn't look good. He's going to be in chains. And yet, in the process of this whole thing, Paul gets to share the gospel all over the Roman world, and his message is spread everywhere, and the church is emboldened and grows more than it has up to this point. You see, when you belong to the Lord, it doesn't matter what happens to you. The enemy can't win. Only God can win. I'm not making light of some of the hard things that happen in our life because sometimes hard things happen to God's people. Hard things happen to good people. But he does not leave us or forsake us. He says, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. There is no demonic force that can take you out unless you let them. We have the authority. God has given us the, the authority. He says, no power in the sky above or in the earth below Indeed, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed. Look at that list. Death, life, angels, demons, fears, worries, powers of hell, no power in the sky or earth, nothing in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God. There's nobody or nothing that can separate us from God's love. There's only one thing, and that is your heart. Your heart can reject his love. And that's the greatest tragedy that can happen anywhere in the world. After all that God has done for us is to say no. He has given us the, the power and authority to say no to him. We can say yes or we can, we can say no. That's a sobering thing, isn't it? So today, if you have a heart of unbelief or a heart that rejects the love of God, you can do something about that. You can say, Lord, I want to stop fighting against you. I want to stop trying to do things on my own. I want to ask you today, I know um, I'm going to ask you to be very honest, and we're going to close with a prayer. I'm not going to call people up today. I feel like this is a, something that we need to do as a proclamation to the Lord.
But how many of you would say, I have allowed accusation a place in my heart and my head, and I want to get rid of it? Can we just stand? I think there are a lot of us here this morning. I've struggled with this. I lived in an Italian-American culture growing up that was full of public praise and private condemnation. Okay? And that's a bad pattern. You know, this is my son. I'm proud of him. You can't do anything right out of the same, same mouth. Okay? And that's because that was passed down from generation to generation to generation. Can we kick the enemy out today? Can we kick out the accusation and condemnation? If there are some of you here that have never received the Lord as Savior, this can be the moment where you say, God, I'm, I'm inviting you in. I'm accepting your love. I want to ask you to repeat after me. And we did a proclamation earlier. Say this with boldness if you have confidence. Heavenly Father, I ask you to come right now. I give you my heart. And I ask you to forgive me for rejecting your love, for giving place to accusation and condemnation, and even believing that you condemn me. I confess now that is not true. I believe that you are a God of love and that your intent toward me is a heart of love. I receive your love through the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. I ask you to stand up on my behalf and I rebuke the enemy and I renounce that accusation and I renounce that condemnation that has had a place in my life. I cast it out in Jesus' name. And I ask you to fill me with your love. Hallelujah. Let's just worship the Lord together, Lord. Fill us with your love, Lord, we pray. I just pray, God, that you would make more room in our hearts for you, that you would fill us with love. And Lord, we do take authority right now based on what people have said. We take authority against the enemy and we expose right now those words of condemnation and accusation. I'm getting pictures of people in the room that have literally been paralyzed. You've been unable to love others. You've been unable to move forward in your life. You've been stuck every time you go to do something for the Lord, the enemy pushes the guilt button and he accuses you. And we are taking authority right now. And you need to cooperate with the Lord and say, the next time the enemy comes to you, I settled that once and for all. God is a God of love who has purchased me by the blood of Jesus Christ, his son. I belong to him. And I rebuke that spirit of accusation and condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Can we just give the Lord a clap offering? Hallelujah. Lord, I just, I pray that these words that we talked about today, Romans 8, that they would resound in our hearts and that you would remind us, that your Holy Spirit would remind us, even this moment we took a stand, that we don't have to live under condemnation and accusation, that we are loved by you. 
And Lord, you tell us when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. I believe Dinah read that today when she stood to uh, in the proclamation. If we have sinned, we have an advocate on our behalf who, fit, who forgives us our sin. So Lord, we just give you thanks and praise and glory and honor. Help us to walk in your victory as we go forth, Lord. Let your word live and resound in our hearts. We thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go in the blessing of the Lord.